Our God is a God of unlimited light, and he calls us to share that light with others. As we give it away generously, in a paradoxical way, we get brighter. We are blessed by being a blessing, giving time and talents, attention and connection, compassion and kindness, and grace in love. It takes a shift in focus off of ourselves and onto others. It can't be faked or fabricated. It has to be desired. It fills us up, and we can't help but spill Jesus onto those around us. So what would happen if we intentionally pursued a life of living generously? And what would it take to be known for our genuine and extravagant generosity? God has called us to live a life more abundant. And that truly comes when we become generous. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here. I'd like to welcome those of you in Skagit, our Skagit campus down there with uh, Shauna and Tia and the gang down there praying for Brian as he's off with the middle schoolers this weekend. I'm sure that's a great, great time for them. And those of you online, those of you uh, watching in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, glad that you're with us, um, as well as those in, uh, in Belize and uh, around as well. Uh, for those of you online in the live stream, I just was told uh, during worship that there's a big group from Alaska watching today, and so we're glad that we're uh, able to be a part of your life, and hopefully it brings light to your world, because you guys are going into eternal darkness here in the next few days. And uh, also a big group from Kansas, and we hope this is a mountaintop experience for you, because you have none. Uh, but it is good, uh, good to have you wherever you're from, and here as well. We are in the third week of this series called Gener Us, Generous, and some of you who maybe are here for the first time or signing on for the first time going, ooh, bad weekend to be here, they're going to ask for money. I said this at the beginning, let me say it again before you walk out or tune off, turn off. This series about generosity has very, very little to do with money. We are going to talk about it a little bit, but very, very little. This is not a capital campaign. You're not going to be asked to make a pledge. There's not going to be a second offering. There's a lot more to generosity than just money. And what we've discussed is that we who are on the receiving end of the greatest generosity of all, those of us who have experienced the generosity of Christ, his forgiveness for our sins, he's given us salvation, he's called us his own, he's adopted us as sons and daughters, he's accepted us, he's given us his Holy Spirit, and on top of all that, to have the power to live our life and then someday have eternity. I mean, we have been generously blessed, and we who have received that kind of generosity ought to be the most generous people on the face of the planet. In addition to that, the one that we follow, our leader, our Lord, set the example and lived the most generous life of all. And we have been given these instructions in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The attitude of Christ led to a life of generosity where he just gave himself away and we as his followers, are called to have that same attitude that would lead to that kind of a generous lifestyle. Now, two weeks ago when I started this series, after that opening weekend, a friend of mine gave me this book. He said, hey, you might want to look through this. The book is called The Paradox of Generosity. I'm not pushing this book. In fact, I wouldn't necessarily say you need to read this book. Uh, this isn't, it's not a Christian book. Um, this book was written by some sociologists. One of them is a sociology professor at Notre Dame, and one of them is a, uh, a PhD uh, candidate in sociology. And they, they approached generosity from a sociological standpoint. If you ever took sociology or know much about sociology, typical sociology kind of book. 
Five-year surveys, studies, demographics, interviews, lots of bar graphs, lots of pie charts, lots of statistics. And from their sociological standpoint, they came to this conclusion that in America, because that was the demographic they were studying, in America, the people who are most generous are also the people who are most happy, enjoy the greatest amount of health and a sense of purpose in their life. Now, some of you are pushing back on the whole causal deal. They confront that as well. Because some of you say, well, maybe the reality is that people who are already happy, people who are already healthy, people who already have a sense of purpose, they're generous because of that. They address that. So, no, no, no. There is an actual correlation between generosity and how much happiness, health, and uh, purpose in life that you uh, enjoy and experience. And the conclusion of the book, they said the question is not being generous, does that make your life better? That's not the question. And they show all kinds of status, uh, data and, and statistics to say, we already know that. The question they come up with is, how generous will you choose to be? Now again, unless you're a sociology professor, you have a sociology project, don't buy this book. <laughs> don't buy this book. Because the whole book can be summed up in these words. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. They could have saved five years of research, several hundred pages, and a bunch of pie charts and graphs and stuff if they just would have gone with the words of Jesus because that's the conclusion they came up with. That Jesus said, listen, if you want to understand the blessed life, the life that is supremely well off, the life that I've called you to, it's one where you give more than you receive. It's one where you are generous. And as we've seen, in this series, we're gonna look that generosity has many different applications in many different facets. For instance, last week, Pastor Kip preached on the generosity of grace. What does it look for us to not just ex receive grace, but to extend grace and to do that generously? With the story of Mephibosheth, which is just an amazing story, but how we need to, to look and to listen and to love and to graciously, generously extend grace. Today, we're gonna look at another facet, another face of how we can be generous in our lives, and it has to do, really, with an encouragement. And for most of us, when we hear the word encouragement, we think about encouraging words, and, and that's a part of it, for sure. Um, I was raised and taught a, um, a little thing that was supposed to help me out, like on the playground at school and such. And, and, and I think it was a lie, honestly, and I think that you were fed this, this propaganda as well, and brainwashed as well. Let me just see, I'll start it off, and you see if you can finish this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you actually believe that's true? If you believe that's true, you just haven't lived long enough. Because words do hurt, names do hurt. In fact, the writer of Proverbs, one of the wisest men of all times, wrote this when he said, reckless words pierce like a sword. And some of us carry around scars because of reckless words. Some of us have some deep cuts and some deep wounds because of reckless word of a parent, of a spouse, of a, of a pastor, of a teacher, of a mentor, of, of a child, of, of a boss. Some of us, unfortunately, have caused some wounds with our reckless words as well. Here's the good news, though. He continues on, he says, but the tongue of the wise brings healing that we also have this. He even gets more dramatic when uh, a few chapters later, he says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And you're like, whoa, whoa, Solomon, you're a little bit over the top there. No, 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 think about it. You know, there have been dreams in your life that either people have breathed life into or sucked life out of because of their words. 
They've either encouraged you or discouraged you. Confidence that was just lifted you up because of someone's words or the lack thereof because of their words. Hope, joy, whatever it might be, words have this power to bring about life or to suck it out and to bring death. And then he gets one more from Proverbs. He gets real poetic when he says, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. I don't even know what that means. But it's poetic and it sounds beautiful. And what if we were dealers? What if we distributed the honey crisp of gold to, to bring about this life and beauty and wonder in other people? And what if our words were encouraging? What if we were filled with up words? Words that cheer up, lift up, build up, call up. And this isn't just a, okay, this is the Proverbs deal. You know, when we studied Ephesians this last summer, there's a lot of stuff we weren't able to cover. And one of them was out of Ephesians 4, when it says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You see, our words have a, a three-ring ripple effect. When we say them, it affects us. Who we say them to, it affects them. And who hears what we say, it affects them. And he says, when you speak words, it has this ripple effect. This is like the home on the range verse where seldom is heard a discouraging word. I want to be uh, um, clear that when a couple months ago when we were putting this, brainstorming this series and putting it together, when we were looking at the different facets of, of generosity, when it came to encouragement, my full intention back in uh, August, whenever it was, my full intention was that today we would focus on our words, the encouraging words, and how to, how to be uh, encouraging and to live this verse out. But as I began to study this and as I began to pray about it, I, I, I want us today, I want us to grow in our understanding and in our thinking regarding encouragement and in our practice of how we live out the generosity of uh, encouragement. Uh, because I believe that while words are a huge part, no, no question there, but I think there's more to encouragement than just that. Just as gener being generous goes beyond the monetary, being encouraging goes beyond the vocabulary. Yes, we can say encouraging words, and we should. We should build one another up with our words, definitely. But there's more than just the words. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he writes these words. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This eternal encouragement that Jesus gives to us, this encouragement that will strengthen us, that will give us hope, that will see us through, is more than just, I believe in you, you can do it. And that's why I want us to look today at beyond that. I've entitled this sermon Encouragement 2.0. Not because the words aren't important, they are. But Encouragement 2.0 is it's more than a cheerleader. It's good to speak, you know, uplifting words, but encouragement goes beyond that. Beyond just you're one in a million, I believe in you. Hey now, you're a rock star. You get your game on, hey. It's more than that. It's more than just saying these things. And so I want us to look at this. When the writer of Hebrews um, wrote this letter, and we're not really sure who wrote it, but he's writing to some people who were undergoing intense difficulty, persecution, hardship, even loss of life. 
and he knew that they needed encouragement, but he knew that encouragement needed to be more than just, hang in there, buddy, it's gonna be okay. You got this, I believe in you. He says, you need to stand firm in your faith, and then he writes in Hebrews and says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not just in our words, but there's something more than that. In fact, the next verse he would say, and let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, which is the pastor's favorite verse for guilting people into coming to church. All right, so we're not gonna do that, even those of you online. Okay, so he says, but, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, when you talk about encouragement, you're using language of the New Testament. More than 100 times in the New Testament, we're told to encourage one another, to be an encouragement, to, to be encouraging. And that word encouraging is the Greek word parakaleo. Now, um, most people would just say parakaleo, but the proper way is parakaleo, which is a way more fun way to say it. Say that with me, parakaleo. Can I, eh oh. All right, one more time, parakaleo. Nice, you guys are Greek. All right, parakaleo means to come alongside. Some of you who are students of word, words, you know this, para, like a, like a paramedic is one who comes alongside doctors in hospitals. A paralegal is one who comes alongside the attorney or the lawyer. A paraeducator, one that comes alongside the teacher. A para, para church ministry is one that comes along the church. Those kind of, a parakaleo is one who comes alongside and calls people up. And I want us to look at, at what does it mean to be an encourager like that. And the, uh, the other thing with that is, is that the parakaleo has the same root word as the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, that the Holy Spirit comes alongside and he comforts us, he counsels us, he's the helper, he's the one that comes and encourages us to move forward, convicts us of sin, empowers us to live right. So this encouragement, I mean, it's like the work of the Holy Spirit. This encouragement is more than just cheering people up, it's coming alongside. So what I wanna do in the next, uh, the, actually the majority of our time, is I want us to look at the life of one individual who I would say is kind of in the New Testament, other than Jesus, well, and the Holy Spirit, is kind of the, the, the patron saint of encouragement. And I want us to look at his life. Chances are, um, if you were raised in church, you've heard his name, but you may not fully know his story. Uh, in fact, I was raised in church, Sunday school, the whole deal from childhood. I remember this guy's name from a kid all my life. I've heard this about 21 years ago, uh, I was uh, at a conference and I heard John Ortberg do a sermon on this man and it opened up this whole world of this guy's life. And, and I would just say, uh, uh, I'm heavily indebted to John Ortberg for a lot of the insights of this sermon because of something he preached 21 years ago. This patron saint that I want us to look at, the patron saint of encouragement, is a guy named Joseph. Joseph, okay now, let's get this straight. It's not Joseph, the cool coat Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, not that one. It's not Christmas Joseph of Mary and Joseph and the Nativity scene Joseph. It's not Easter Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. It's Joseph numero quattro. It's another Joseph. And the Bible says about Joseph that he was a Levite from Cyprus. Now, as we will see, he was a big part of the early church. What we don't know is when he became a follower after Jesus. 
He may have heard Jesus teach. He may have become a follower when Jesus was walking on, on the earth. He may have been a part of that original core. We don't know. He may have become a follower of Jesus on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people followed Jesus. He may have been one of those 3,000. And it says that after that, daily, their numbers were added to. He may have been one of those that came along after that. We don't know when, but he became a part of the church, and he was actually a very intricate part of the early church. Now, he's a Levite, which is mean he's from the Levitical tribe, from the tribe of Levi, and the Levitical tribe was the priestly tribe. In the first century, the Levites, their role was kind of a para-priest. They would come alongside the priests and help out in the temple. Doorkeepers and musicians and, and utensils and all that, those kind of things. He's from the Levitical tribe, but he's also from Cyprus. Cyprus is an island out in the Mediterranean Sea, so he was not born in Israel. What that means is that because he was born outside of Israel, he probably did not speak Aramaic. The Hebrew, the Hebrew Jews spoke primarily Aramaic. Those born outside of Israel spoke primarily Greek. And the Hebrew Jews kind of looked down on these others as secondary citizens because they didn't speak Aramaic. And if there was a Levite who didn't speak Aramaic like Joseph, they were probably limited in their ability to perform the duties that they were a part of. So here he is in Jerusalem, he's a Levite, but he doesn't get to help out in the temple the way, and, and you could see that this would, could cause him to be bitter. I mean, to be soured by the whole thing. What do you mean? I, mean? I mean, I'm a Levite. This is our bloodline, and I don't get to do this, and you're looking down on me. But what you will find with Joseph is that that is not the case at all. Because he is not about himself. He's always about others. It's not about his kingdom, about his role, about his ability, about his fame. In fact, so much so is he about others that he gets a nickname. In fact, most of you know him by his nickname, not by his given name. Interesting thing about nicknames is sometimes nicknames are based on an, an event that happened or uh, some character trait or something that someone does or, or uh, idiosyncrasy or whatever. And sometimes nicknames are kind of sarcastic. They're actually the anti. I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, the church I grew up in, there was a man, I don't even know his real first name. He was always referred to as Tiny. Tiny Lewis was his name. Lewis was his last name, Tiny Lewis. Tiny was like six foot four, 300 pounds. So his nickname was kind of sarcastic. This huge mammoth man was referred to as Tiny. Now, I also knew a guy named Moose Sprunger. He too was a big man. So one of them was sarcastic and one of them was accurate. Tiny and Moose, both big men, different things. Okay, understand that. Well, this guy has a nickname and it's definitely not on the sarcastic side. It's on the actual side. The nickname that is given to him, what he's also known as, is Barnabas. Now, some of you are going, oh, yeah, I've heard of him, right? Me too. Most of us never think of him as being Joseph. That, his parents are like, Joseph. And he's like, no, 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 they all call me Barnabas. Now, again, if you're studying a, a student of words in the New Testament, anytime you see the word bar, bar means son of. Like there's a time when Jesus looks at, at Peter and he says, Simon, bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, son, son of John. Or some of you have heard of Bartholomew or Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, okay? In fact, Bar Mitzvah, you've heard of a Bar Mitzvah? 
When a Jewish boy turns 13, he becomes a bar, the son of the commandment. Now he can read Torah in, in the synagogues and such. Okay, so his name is Bar-Nabas, which literally translated is son of encouragement. You think about it. What would it take to get the nickname son of encouragement? The very personification of encouragement is you. Now, some of, you, some of you have been called sons of something else's, but, and it didn't take much for that, but what would it take, what kind of lifestyle, what kind of action, what kind of, what kind of um, you know, things that you would do throughout your life, say and be, would land you this title, son of encouragement. And that's what he's called, this son of encouragement. It's a nickname. So I want to look at his life, and I want us to touch down on about four or five areas in his life. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 13, a little chapter 15. So if you say, I, I don't want to do that, just watch the TV. We'll be good. You can write these notes down. And you can follow along. Where we first hear about this Barnabas, again, we don't know how long he's been a part of the church. We first hear about him in Acts chapter 4, and it says this. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles, okay, this is important. It's not just some of his buddies. He's on the inside. Like these are the 12. This is Peter, James, and John, Matthew, those guys. They know him. They know his life well enough. They know him. So you get what I'm saying? He's not just you know, one of these on the outskirts that comes to church 1.7 times a, a month and he shows up for the potluck every fall. I mean, he, he's very much involved, very much involved with the core of the church and the apostles call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So now you've got Jesus, 12 guys, or the 11 plus, and they're saying, you know, we can't call him Joe. This guy, I mean, look at his life. Look what he does. We'll call him the son of encouragement. And the first thing that we see him doing is this. He sold a field he had owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I told you, we're not going to spend a lot of time on money in this series, so I don't want to spend a lot of time in this, but here's the truth. No one asked him to sell that field. He was not requested or required to sell that field. He had this field, wasn't using it, thought this money could be better served in a different way. He deliberately, intentionally chose to, to sell that field and then brought the money, and look at this, laid it at the disciples' feet. What he's saying is, this, this is a gift, and I don't need to control it or direct it. I trust you guys. You know where the needs are. I just want to come alongside. I want to collaborate with what we're doing. I, want, I love what God is doing here. I'm just going to lay this at your feet. And, and if this is the go, you feel like this is best used to serve widows, then, then, then help out the widows. If you want to use this to help out the orphans, great. If you want to, if you want to take this and plant churches, then, then by all means, plant churches. If you want to use this to, you know, to help with the poor, then, then help with the poor. But I trust you, and you know what? I don't need to control this. I don't need my name on some wing. I don't need anything named after me because it was never about Barnabas. He's this parakaleo. It just says, I want to come alongside, and I just want to encourage. And this is one of the practical ways I can do this. Now, after this scene, he kind of disappears from the pages of Scripture for a while. Not that he goes away, but he just works behind the scenes. That's kind of how he is. Meanwhile, hold on to, to, to Barnabas. We'll come back to him. Meanwhile, there's a guy named Saul. And Saul is a very religious man, but he hates Jesus followers. 
And some of you are familiar with his life. He gave death threats and he went around having them arrested. He was trying to eradicate the world of these Jesus followers. He had them beaten, put in chains, put in jail. He would break up their meetings. In fact, one of their good friends, Stephen, we'll talk about this next week, was killed and Saul was right there on the front row of that whole event. But one day as he's going out to arrest some Christians in Damascus, he meets Jesus. And his life is changed. He's transformed. And as he meets Jesus, he becomes a Jesus follower. And then, chapter 9, he goes to Jerusalem. This is amazing. When he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. You can understand this. I mean, this is like, we're scared of this guy. And we're a little bit ticked off at him. I mean, he had my mom arrested. You know, he murdered our friend Stephen. And this whole, I'm a Christian now. Yeah, I heard that a million times. I was born at night, but not last night. I'm not gonna have this wolf in sheep's clothing come in here, come right in on his Trojan horse of, look at me, I'm a redeemed person. They didn't believe him. No one would have anything to do with him. He wasn't allowed in the church. No one would talk to him. No one would touch him. But Barnabas... The son of encouragement, the parakaleo, says, you know, I, I want to talk to this guy. He meets him, hears his story, spends some time with him, hears what God's done in his life, what God's doing in his life, recognizes this guy truly is a follower after Jesus, and he's like, Saul, you know what, come with me. L let me, come along, I'll be right by your side. And these guys, they like me. They, they trust me. They call me son of Pericleo. Come with me, and, I, and I'll vouch for you. But Barnabas, it says, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And do you know what the results of that was? Saul was embraced by the church and had an incredible ministry. Would not have happened if it weren't for a guy like Barnabas who said, I'll come alongside you. I'll invest my life in you. I'll encourage you. I'll speak up for you. I'll give you a second chance. Now again, at this point, Barnabas just goes off this, the, the story. You, you, he's still working, but you don't know what's going on there. Meanwhile, Saul moves back home. Tarsus, up in Turkey, goes back home, lives with his mom in the basement, playing video games. I don't know what he's doing, but he goes back to Tarsus and he goes off the scene as well. And then something happens. Because, uh, again, we'll look at this a little bit next week, but when Stephen got killed, great persecution broke out against the Christians. And there's a thing called the diaspora. The diaspora. It's, it's when there was this scattering of people where they were dispersed because of the persecution. Like, and all these Jesus followers start going to other areas, other regions, other countries. Like, that'll take care of it. Um, I think it was Tertullian the early church father who said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. It's like saying, I hate this dandelion, I'll get rid of it. <laughs> oh yeah, bad call. Now you just planted them all over your yard. So when they tried to persecute the church, they just planted churches all over the world. And people would go with this message of Jesus, this message of the gospel of salvation, and they would speak to other Jewish people. And other Jewish people were, the, the church is beginning to spread now. But this is a hinge point because something unusual happened. Some of them, however, 
Men from Cyprus. Who else is from Cyprus, by the way? Barnabas. Barnabas. Someone's listening. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down. Hold on. That is not how we roll around here. We're Jewish people. The Greeks are not included. We're God's chosen people. This is like the first. This is huge. Because for the first time now, this gospel, this kingdom of God is opening up not just to Jewish people, but to all people. If this would not have happened, we would not get to be in the kingdom of God. So now they're speaking to this to, Jew, to Greeks as, as well, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So Antioch is having this massive revival. These people are coming to know the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Wah, wah. We've never done it that way before. This isn't the way it works, is it? And here are all of these people that are discovering the grace and the life in Jesus. And then the news gets back to the leaders in Jerusalem. Well, they're excited about the kingdom, but, but with Greeks, it's just, it's just, we, we, it's just, they don't know Torah. They're, they're not Jewish. They don't follow the Levitical laws. They don't know how to eat right. They don't do the festivals. They don't know the sacrifices. They, they don't know any of that. And they're saying, we, we gotta check this out. We gotta figure this out, and we might need to snuff this out. So what did they do? News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas. This son of encouragement. Interesting thought. Why didn't one of the 12 go? I mean, they're the leaders of the church right now. But they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God and was glad. Of course, encouragers always rejoice with others. Because it's not about them, it's about others. And he was glad, and this is a big surprise. He was glad and, hmm, encouraged them. What a thought. Barnabas would encourage someone. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Here he comes, he says, I'm just gonna come alongside you. And I'm gonna walk with you, and I'm gonna rejoice with you, and I'm gonna encourage you, and I'm gonna teach you. And there are so many people becoming followers of Jesus in Antioch, he realizes this is beyond the scope of my capacity. I can't do this single-handedly. I need some help. None of the apostles came up here with me. Who but can I go? And then all of a sudden he thinks, I've got it. There was that one guy that I met, and he seemed like he had some potential. A real Jewish guy, but he had some potential. What was this? Saul, that was it. That guy, where, where did he go? He went back to his mom's basement playing video games. You know, I think he could really help me out. So it says this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. He comes alongside Saul and says, get back in the game. He brings him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. A little side note. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. This word that we just use universally, Christians, that was not the original title. It was followers of the way, followers of Jesus. But in Antioch, this was not a term of endearment. This was actually a poking fun. Little Christs is what it means. These little Christs, these little Christians. But, but Barnabas is there and he brings Paul. And he says, Paul, come on, I believe in you. You've got so much potential. You should not be staying there in Antioch. We got work to do. And he brings him 
uh, you shouldn't say in Tarsus. He brings them to Antioch, and for a year, they just come alongside, and they just pour into these people, these, these new young believers who have no history with Judaism at all. They've just heard this grace of Jesus Christ, and they start this ministry, and they begin ministering together, and it starts this partnership that goes on for quite some years. Last weekend when Pastor Kip was preaching, he mentioned that names in the Bible have great significance. Even Barnabas does, son of encouragement. There's significance. Very often in scripture, when names are listed, the order is of importance as well. And this is a part that, that I'd never seen before. Very subtle, but it's very significant. This is one of those things that John Ortberg pointed out 21 years ago. I'm like, wow, never saw that before. So when names are listed, very often, it's not like um, who's more important, but it's kind of more like, um, authority. Who's in charge here? Who's running the show and who's working? You know, they're working together, but those kind of things. And what you see over the course of these next chapters as they work together is this order. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Barnabas was there first. He goes and gets Saul. He's the one that helped Saul get back in the game. He's kind of tutoring and mentoring Saul on this. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. There was a massive famine in Jerusalem. A collection was taken. They send the money back to Jerusalem, and Barnabas and Saul take the money back. When Barnabas and Saul finish their mission, then they come on. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul. You see the order here. Barnabas is the leader. Saul is the one who's being mentored. Saul is the one who he comes alongside of. Saul is helping out. But as he pours into Saul, something amazing happened. Saul's gifts begin to flourish. The power of God begins to come on him. His impact and his effectiveness begins to just explode. And in chapter 13 of Acts, you see where God uses Paul in a dynamic way. And then he preaches this unbelievable sermon. And then something happens. Acts chapter 13, 42. And Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Notice anything different? Besides that it's gone from Saul to Paul, because that's his, now his Greek name. You notice the order has changed. And from this point on throughout the New Testament, it is never Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul. It is always Paul and Barnabas. Now you would think Barnabas would be going, it's not fair. I'm the senior pastor. I need to come first. I need the parking spot. Are you kidding me? Barnabas is so pumped about this. He's more excited than he. He's rejoicing. He's on the front line going, yeah, look at that. I knew he had potential. Look what God's doing. He's just like, come alongside you. You go. You, you reach levels. Stand on my shoulders and, and go where I could never go before. You do, do the things I can never do. Because he just comes alongside, he's just a parakaleo. He says, I just want to encourage you. I just want to lift you up. I want to build you up. I want to push you forward. It's not about me. And it just wasn't just with Saul. Let's back up a little bit. Chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul, this is back before that uh, chapter 13 thing happened, finished their mission and they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Pause. This last year, we spent, what, 16, 17 weeks in the book of Mark. Some of you remember throughout January through uh, Easter. John Mark, this young man, is the one who wrote this gospel. And I can't expect that you would remember this, but we talked about that he grew up in Jerusalem. His mom's name was Mary. Not that Mary. 
and not that Mary or that Mary. Okay, another Mary. But he grows up and the church, the early church met in their home. John Mark is the young cousin of a guy named Joseph, a Levite from Cyrene, uh, uh, from Cyprus, who is Barnabas. And I can just imagine Barnabas and Saul come to Jerusalem. They deliver the money to the church there. They're having dinner at Mary, who's Barnabas's aunt. And young John Mark is there. I don't know, late teens, early 20s. And Barnabas says, Aunt Mary, I, what, what do you think about John Mark going with us? I mean, get him out of Jerusalem for a while, hang with us, God's doing some incredible things. I see some potential in him, this would be great. And she agrees, and he's like, yeah. And so they, they, they venture off on this journey. And everything's going great. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This was not a part of the agenda. This was not a planned departure. We don't know what happened, but this young John Mark may have gotten scared, may have said, this is too much for me, I can't handle this, I, I miss my mom, I, we don't know what, but he left. And as we'll see later, he bailed on them and left them hanging. It wasn't a, a good departure. All right, so they go on, God's using them, they're doing incredible ministry. Two years later, Paul and Barnabas decide, hey, let's go on another missionary journey. Great idea. Barnabas says this. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. It's like, hey, you remember my young cousin? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know he bailed. He's two years older now. And, and man, he's got some incredible potential. And I think we ought to take him. Paul wasn't as excited about this. Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And scripture says, you can read this on your own, there was a sharp dispute that happened amongst these two. And I wonder, I wonder if that point, I mean, Barnabas has poured his life into this Paul and I wonder if he says, you know, I know I'm the son of encouragement, but I, today I'm going to be the son of exhortation. Because I just need to call you on something. I think you're wrong. And Paul's standing his ground. No, it's a matter of principle. You remember the past. And Barnabas is going, but look at his potential. And can't he be pardoned? And besides all that, do you remember your past? Do you remember when no one would touch you with a 10-foot pole? you remember when Jerusalem wouldn't even allow you in? What did I do? I came alongside and I gave you a chance. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't be in the ministry. And you remember when you were sitting in your mom's basement and I came to Tarsus and got you back in the game? You wouldn't have been impacted like this if it weren't for me. And you're not willing to give someone else with potential a second chance. And Paul holds his ground and Barnabas holds his ground and they part ways. Barnabas says, you know what? You're good, Go. I'm gonna take my cousin because I think he's got incredible potential. And Barnabas and Mark go and he pours into him. Meanwhile, Paul picks up a new uh, partner, Paul and Silas, and away they go. Now, there's a lot more we could say about all that. Fast forward 15 years. 15 years, Paul's nearing the end of his life. He writes his last letter to Timothy. He's saying, you know, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. There awaits for me the crown of glory that is in store for all those who trust. 
He knows his life is coming to the end. He writes to Timothy and he writes these words. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And I can imagine as Luke and Mark come, maybe one night around a campfire sitting next to his dying man's bed, Paul and Mark have a conversation. And Paul says, you know, Mark, I'm sorry. I didn't give you a second chance. Barnabas gave me a second chance. I, I, I apologize for that. And Mark says, no, 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 no. I was a quitter. I shouldn't have left you guys. I was young. I'm sorry about that. I said, okay, okay. And then they start talking about Barnabas. You know, your cousin Barnabas, if it weren't for him coming alongside me, they would have never even let me in the church. And if he didn't believe in me enough to come look for me while I was back in Tarsus, and he got me back in the game, and he poured his life into me, and he mentored me, and he encouraged me, and my gifts began to develop, and if it weren't for Barnabas, none of this would have been possible in my life. And Mark says, I know, I know. I mean, he's an older cousin of mine. He's always, always like kind of like a young uncle to me. And when I bailed on you guys, and then two years later, and he even let you go your own way because he believed in me and the potential he saw in me, and he came alongside me and he poured into my life. And Barnabas, who's really kind of a secondary figure in most people's minds, had come alongside and lifted up Paul who is the great missionary to the Gentiles, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, and young Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, from which Matthew and Luke borrowed heavily from. What if it weren't for a guy named Barnabas, this son of encouragement, this parakaleo, that comes alongside and doesn't just cheer people up, but lifts them up, calls them up, holds them up. You know, I think the greatest physical example of this whole thing, of this parakaleo, is found in the arms of Moses. The arms of Moses. Let's quickly go to the Old Testament, then we'll close. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to come up here and help me out real quick. All right? Jess and, and uh, was it Nick, I think, and Missy? Hurry. Come on. You're not that old. Move. Right here. Okay. Here we go. Just right here. I, I mean, just right here. All right. Missy. And was it Nick? Yeah. Okay. Missy? Um, you're going to be Moses. Okay. Good. All right, hold on to that. That's a Moses stick. All right. So um, there's a story in Exodus where Israel is going to fight the Amalekites. And um, Moses says, this is what I will do. Tomorrow I'll go up on a hill and I'll take the rod of God and I'll hold it up in the air. Moses? No, no, no. Come like on, Moses. Really? Yeah. Okay, don't smack these guys in the head. I know. We got a short mo. All right. So... Uh, <laughs> So Moses is holding this, this rod of God, the staff of God up in the air. And as long as Moses holds this up, the Israelites are winning. But sometimes Moses' arms get a little tired. And it starts to go down. And when it does, the Amalekites win. So then they put it back up and they're winning. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, cool, watch that. No. So it's going back and forth. All right, you're doing great. Keep it up there. All right, Nick, I need you to stand aside just for a second here. Let's read the scripture. It says, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone. We don't have one, so Mr. you have to just stand there. They took a stone and put it under him. He sat on it. Aaron, 
You be Aaron over there, Jess, and her. Nick, you come over here, you can be her. All right, it's spelled H-U-R, you're good. Held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Held his hands up, not the rod of God, come on. All right, a little more enthusiasm, kind of like this. Okay, now, you see this picture right here? The parakaleos, the one who come alongside, they could have just said, come on, Moses, you wimp, hold it up there. You got more in you. They could have cheered him on. I believe in you. No, no, it wasn't just these words of the cheerleader. They came alongside and they held up his arms. And because of that, great works of God took place. All right, let's thank these guys. Good job, Moses. You're fantastic. That's this picture of encouragement beyond just cheerleading. All right, I close with this. In the book of Hebrews, little side note, this is just fun stuff um, for me. Um, an early church father that I referred to, Tertullian, uh, lived in the second and third century. He believed, there's no, nothing to substantiate this, but he believed that the book of Hebrews was written by Barnabas. That was his thought. In fact, he writes about that. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but if it was, speculation totally, if it was written by Barnabas, how cool is this verse? But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Who better to write that verse than the son of Perikaleo? And he says, here's how long I want you to encourage. As long as it is called today. If you ever live a day in your life that's not called today, you can stop. It's generous Encouragement daily, every single day. Now, what if, what if, what if we began to practice this in small, intangible ways, striving to be generous, striving to have the attitude of Christ who is most generous and who gives us eternal encouragement and every single day started doing things? What would it take for your family, for your friends, for your coworkers, for your teammates, for your schoolmates, for people in your small group to say, and she's a daughter of encouragement. And he's a son of encouragement. So let's live this verse out of Hebrews. And this week, every day, maybe start your morning saying, Jesus, help me to know how I can come alongside and encourage someone today. Just find one way every single day and start becoming a son and daughter of encouragement.